Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, this morning to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And actually, before we, we get that up, let me do a, a brief introduction uh, here. But as you're turning there, Mark 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 this morning. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Whenever we encounter a conquering king, there will be begging. Whenever we encounter a conquering king, there will be begging. We're going to look at our passage this morning under four headings. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to look at bondage. And then in verses 6 through 10, we're going to look at battle. And then in verses 11 through 13, we're going to look at bacon. Bacon, yes. And then in, in verses 14 through 20, we're going to look at begging, okay? So bondage, battle, bacon, and begging, okay? Now, some of you are wondering with four points, can this even be a Christian sermon, right? I want to assure you one of those points is bacon, and bacon makes everything better. So let's look together at God's Word, starting at Mark chapter 5 and verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, there, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord 
has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this text this morning, there are some here who are hurting. There are some here who are struggling. Father, we've all been tormented in different ways in this week, in this last month, and in this new year. And so, Father, I pray as we come to this text this morning that you might remind us of the freedom that is ours in Christ, the bondage that has been broken, and the joy that is ours. Father, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open this morning as we look at the text. As we come to, uh, as we come to our first point this morning, the first point is bondage. Bondage. Now, Mark uh, is Mr. Immediately, right? Immediately kind of describes Mark's literary style. Mark is rushing from one piece to another, and he never really slows down for details. He, he's a man of action, right? He's sparse on adjectives. Those don't show up uh, a lot in the text, and we see that. He doesn't slow down for details, for example, in verse 1. Right In Mark 5, 1, they come to the other side of the sea. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that that sea is the Sea of Galilee, right? where Jesus has just demonstrated his power over nature by saying, peace, be still, and the, and the storm was calmed in 439. So they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, Mark here is leaving out all sorts of details. For example, he doesn't tell you that this is Gentile country. And he doesn't tell you that this is the first time in the whole gospel that Jesus arrives in Gentile country. And by the way, Jesus, a Jew, uh, shouldn't be in Gentile country, right? That was kind of forbidden. It was taboo. And yet Jesus here is deliberately going into Gentile country. And yet Mark doesn't mention that. He doesn't give us those details. He doesn't explain Jesus' intention, why Jesus is here doing this, right? And then we have verses 2 and verse 6. And verse 2 and verse 6 are, all, are, say, are saying similar things. They're almost identical that way. Okay, they're not identical, but they're saying the same thing. Look, look at verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat... Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And now look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Right? So they're saying the same thing. It's repetitive. It's redundant. Why does Mark do that? And then, as if 2 and 6 re repeating themselves isn't enough, he goes and he adds verses 3 through 5. Right? This is 57 words in the Greek. It's 68 words in the English. Why does he add all of these verses? Why is Mark suddenly so for verbose? Well, he wants you to slow down. And he wants you to see the condition of this man that he meets on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
You see, Jesus goes from one terrifying storm to another terrifying storm. He goes from the terrifying storm in the sea to the terrifying storm of this man's soul. And everyone around Jesus is afraid. Jesus encounters a man with an unclean spirit. Now, what does it mean that he has an unclean spirit? That doesn't mean that this spirit was kind of lacking in personal hygiene, right? That he, he didn't floss or he hadn't showered in a couple of days, right? He didn't use deodorant. That's not what this is saying. Mark uses unclean, right, as a way to talk about a particular ritual. He's pointing you back to the, whole, the, the cleanliness code that we read this morning from in Leviticus 11 through 15. You see, in the cleanliness code, the cleanliness code is pointing you to a ritual. And that ritual is that you need to be cleansed. You need to be washed. You see, you had to stay away from unclean things because if you encountered unclean things, then you became defiled. And if you were defiled, then you needed to be cleansed. You needed to be washed. You needed to be atoned for. And if you weren't cleansed or washed or atoned for, then you would be cut off from the presence of God. And you would be cut off from the people of God. And these spirits are defiling spirits. These spirits are spirits that have been cut off from the presence of God. And so he calls them unclean spirits. And that's just the first detail that Mark gives. Mark goes on. His second detail is there in verse 3. He lived among the tombs. He lived among the tombs. This man is making his home among the dead. And he may have survived off of food that was left for the dead. And he was certainly left for dead. His outer circumstances are pointing towards an inner reality. He's a walking dead man. His soul was plagued by darkness and death. He's no longer welcome in the land of the living. He's completely isolated. He's utterly alone. He's cut off from God and cast off from society. He's an unclean man with an unclean spirit living in an unclean place. But then thirdly, Mark gives us another detail. This man is controlled by an untamable power. Look at verse 3. No one can bind him anymore. He can't even be bound with a chain. Why? Verse 4, because he's wrenching the chains apart. He's breaking the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. He's a dangerous, powerful, wild, untamable force of evil. And then fourthly, this man is daily self-destructive. And we see this in verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, right? So night and day all the time among the tombs and on the mountains everywhere. So all the time and everywhere he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Can you feel his agony? Can you see his desperation? 
His tattered body is pointing towards his tattered life. His scarred limbs are pointing towards his scarred soul. His wounded cries, like those of an injured animal, are pointing towards his wounded heart. He's filled with destruction, devastation, and death. And he's destroying himself. Do you see the picture? David Garland says this, This man is condemned to live out his days alone amid the decaying bones of the dead with no one who loves him and no one to love. Malignant spirits always deface humanity and destroy life. And that's the picture of bondage that Jesus encounters when he steps upon the shore of this man's life. Secondly, we have battle in verses 6 through 10. Now, when we think about battle, when you come to this scene, it looks, it appears at first reading, like you have two men having a conversation on a shore. Right? But I would implore you this morning, that's not actually what's going on. I want to give you a different frame. I want to give you a spiritual lens so you can see what's going on here. This is an invasion of the kingdom. This is a cosmic battle. This is a conquering king who's landed on the enemy's shore. It's a military assault on an enemy stronghold. Picture the scene like this, right? The king arrives on the shore with impenetrable armor, right? And he's riding on a white horse, and he's got his massive army behind him. This is an epic, cosmic battle that's going on. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is met by a legion of the enemy. Now, it's only one man, but did you catch what when Jesus asks this man his name, what he says? And remember, in the Bible, your name always points to your character. It's always talking about your nature. Look at verse 9. And when Jesus, and then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion is a Latin loan word that's inserted here into the Greek text because Mark wants to give you a picture of this Roman military unit, right? A Roman legion is 6,000 foot soldiers. It's 6,000 foot soldiers. I wanted to give you a visual image of that this morning. Greg, can we get that first slide here? So... A Roman legion typically was set up in 10 cohorts of, and it's not like you're going through graduate school here, right? Uh, 10 cohorts of six centuries each. And the century is ruled by a centurion, governed by a centurion, and each century has approximately 100 men. Now, they're moving those men forward because, you know, the first cohort is going to take the biggest hit. But the picture here is that these Roman legions are coming at you in waves, right? So we might have this morning here at the 11 a.m. service uh, maybe 400 people, okay? So if you take 6,000 and and you have 400 people to get 6,000 out of this group, you'd need to have 15 of our churches, and everyone in here is then a soldier in the Roman army. You'd need 15 churches down here along Northside Drive to get to 6,000 people. This is a vast army. It's an army of evil. 
Here's one artist rendering. Can we get that next slide, Greg? Here's one artist rendering of what a legion would look like. This is what Jesus encounters when he comes to the store, to the shore. Maybe he went to the store too. Can, can you take that one down? Thanks. So, this is an army of evil, and this army of evil runs immediately to defend their stronghold against the invading king. So don't see two men talking on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's one man versus an army of 6,000 demons. And yet, if you've watched military movies, if you've read military history, you know that when it comes to negotiating peace, who's in control? Who dictates the terms? It's always the victor, right? But look at how this passage unfolds. Who's in control? When verse 6, he, that is the man with the legion, runs and fell down before him, that's Jesus. He runs and he falls down before him. It wasn't like he forgot to tie his shoe and he tripped and he fell down, right? And this also isn't worship. There's no allegiance here. But legion is coming and he's bowing the knee before Jesus. He's acknowledging his own inferiority. And then he goes on. What have you to do with me in verse 7? What have you to do with me? Now, this is an idiom that's frequently used on the lips of demons, right? It's found in the Gospels that, that demons are always saying, Jesus, what have you to do with me? And what's being said here is we're from two different kingdoms. We have nothing in common. There's nothing that binds us together. What have you to do with me? We're from different sides of the tracks. And then he goes on in verse 7, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Those are terms of surrender. Legion is saying to Jesus, you win. Even on his own turf, right? Even though he outnumbers Jesus 6,000 to 1, Legion knows he's outmanned. He knows that his power can't match the power of Jesus. Jesus wins anytime, anywhere, and against anyone. But what Legion lacks in allegiance he makes up for in clarity. He sees something the disciples can't. He grasps something that eludes the disciples. Look back at Mark 4.41. Do you remember what the disciples said after they saw Jesus calm the storm? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? Well, Legion has the answer, and it's in Mark 5, 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? You see, Legion sees Jesus for who he is. And it's precisely because he sees Jesus for who he is that he surrenders to his authority. When you see Jesus as the invading, conquering, all-powerful king, surrender is the only response that makes sense. And that's something that you need to ponder if you're here this morning as an unbeliever. And that's something that you need to ponder if you're here this morning as a believer. And then in verse 10 there's begging around the terms of surrender. 
And I want you to notice the, the move in pronouns here, right? Verse 10, and he, that is the man, begged him, that is Jesus, earnestly not to send them, that is the demons, out of the country. And may I suggest to you that this is a little bit haunting I think that Mark is insinuating a particular attachment here. The attachment of a man to his demons. Now for years, the demons have wrecked his life. They've driven away everyone he loves and they've destroyed his body. He's been tormented and afflicted, isolated and alone. His life has only been filled with darkness and devastation and death. And yet... In the moment of deliverance, the man begs Jesus not to send them out of the country. He wants to keep them close. You see, there's a certain fondness and familiarity. There's a certain attachment and affection. He doesn't want to let go of these who have ruled him for so long. And you know why that's haunting, don't you? If we're honest, when we look at this text, we see not only that it's a window into something that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's also a mirror where we see our own soul. We see our own fondness and familiarity, our own attachment and affection for the things that once enslaved us. We find ourselves going back to them again and again. So bondage, battle, and that brings us now to bacon. Bacon, verses 11 through 13. And this is a pretty unusual text. It's a little confusing. It's an equal opportunity offender. On the one hand, it offends nature lovers and people who are fans of the movie Babe. And then on the other hand, it offends those people who, you know, love bacon and ham and are thinking, what a waste here, right? In, in verse 11, there's a herd of pigs. And then Legion begs Jesus, saying, send us to the pigs. And then Jesus gives them permission. And so they enter the pigs, and 2,000 pigs rush down the steep bank into the sea, and they drown in the sea. Did you hear that? The sea is used twice. What's the sea? Well, we just came out of the sea, right? The disciples were just delivered from the sea. And I don't want you to miss the irony here. You see, the disciples were afraid of drowning in the sea. Do you remember that? Just a couple of verses ago, back in Mark 4:38, the storm has come up, and some of these guys are fishermen. They know the sea, and they're afraid for their life. And Jesus, and I don't know how he's doing this, but somehow he's sleeping in the stern, and they go and they wake him up, and they say, teacher, don't you care if we're perishing, right? They're afraid for their lives. But the disciples didn't perish. They were delivered. But the pigs, who were safe on land, end up perishing in the sea. Now, I'm not sure why Jesus grants this permission, right? He didn't need to destroy the pigs. He could have dispatched of these demons any way he wanted. But I will say to you that if you have a predictable Jesus, one who does exactly what you expect him to all the time, that maybe you don't have the real Jesus... 
You see, the real Jesus is full of surprises. The real Jesus doesn't fit nice and neatly into your categories. He's not a tame lion. So why destroy 2,000 pigs? That's a lot of bacon, right? Why destroy 2,000 pigs? Well, some have said that we wanted to have a visual outward sign, right? How do, you, how do you wrap your mind around the fact that there are 6,000 demons? Will you enumerate it by seeing this magnitude of 2,000 pigs that are being destroyed? So it's a visual picture, right? And so that picture was worth 2,000 pigs. And by the way, that's a costly picture, right? This deliverance is a costly deliverance. I went out and did a little research this week. Admittedly, it was kind of light research. It was just on the internet. And so if any of you are pig experts, please come to me afterwards and correct this. But it looks like pigs, a full-grown pig going to slaughter, sorry, is uh, somewhere you can buy that somewhere between $250 and $1,000, right? $250 to $1,000. So let's take a conservative estimate there. And let's say that you can buy a pig for $500, okay? So, so do the math with me here. If you have 2,000 pigs, at $500 a pig, that's what? One million dollars, right? Mike Myers, okay, that's a whole. One million dollars, right? That's a costly deliverance here. That's a small fortune. But in Jesus' economy, one man is worth 2,000 pigs, in Jesus' economy, demonstrating his power so that some might believe is worth more than 2,000 pigs. But you also need to see this from a Jewish perspective, okay? Because for us, whether you're a fan of the movie Babe or a fan of bacon, you either have a special place in your heart or your stomach for pigs, right? But the Jews didn't see pigs that way. For Jews, the pigs were unclean right? Uh, the, the Gentiles, the Romans used them in worship. And so these are defiling animals. So to put yourself in a Jewish mindset here, you need to think of these pigs like we might think of bubonic plague carrying rats or Ebola infected beef, right? From a Jewish perspective, this is an unclean man in an unclean place who's been freed from unclean spirits. And in addition, an unclean land has been relieved of unclean animals. And do you see what Mark is saying here? He's saying that Jesus has come to make the unclean clean. Bacon. Then finally, begging. Begging, verses 14 through 20. Now, the word beg appears four times in our text. We saw it already in verse 10. And he, the man, begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Verse 12, and they, legion, begged him, Jesus, saying, send us into the pigs. Right? And the last two uses of the word beg occur here in our text this morning. Let's start, pick it up at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, 
clothes and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You see, these people are afraid. Why are they afraid? They were afraid because they had seen the power of legion, and Jesus has cast out legion. And so now they're afraid of the power of Jesus. But remember, the disciples were just afraid of Jesus too. At the end of Mark 4, verse 41, it says, and they were filled with great fear. Right? Let's go back to our text, verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to what? To depart from their region. And then there's another begging. It's the begging of the freedman. And it's there in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, so he's granting their request to leave the region of the Gentiles. As he's getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, begged Jesus that he might be with him. You see, here at the end of our passage, Mark is putting before you two kinds of begging. Right. On the one hand, there's the begging of the townspeople. They're begging Jesus to depart. But on the other hand, there's the begging of the freedman, and he's begging to be with Jesus. And when this invading, conquering king lands on the shore of your life, begging is inevitable. It's inescapable. There will be begging. Everyone begs in the presence of the king. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, when you're confronted with Jesus' raw, unmitigated power, you're begging Jesus to leave. But if you're a believer here this morning, I think that at times, if we're honest, we do both, don't we? In our weaker moments, we find ourselves like the people afraid. Afraid of this untamable, invading, conquering king who's landed on the shores of our lives. But in our best moments, we find ourselves like the freedman, begging to be with Jesus, and then going out and proclaiming in the Decapolis all that Jesus has done for us. And Mark is writing this gospel. He is writing this story that we might beg more and more like the freedman. So what moves us from begging Jesus to depart to begging to be with Jesus and proclaiming all that he's done for us? And I think the answer is identification. Which character are you identifying with? Which character do you see yourself in? You see, if we're identifying with the townspeople, then we've got our lives all together. And Jesus is just a powerful disruption. He's an unwelcome distraction. He's an unnecessary expense. And we'll beg Jesus to depart. But if we identify with the demoniac, if we see in the picture of his bondage our own bondage, the more we see that, the more our begging will resemble the begging of the freed man. Now, I want to preserve the physicality of the text, right? 
This is a story about a man who really lived 2,000 years ago in a conversation that happened on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there were 2,000 pigs and 6,000 demons, right? But brothers and sisters, what does the Bible say about us? What does the Bible say that we once were? In Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the power of the the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience who is now at work in those sons, right? You were once dead. You were once following the prince of the power of the air. Christian, this was once you. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his conversion memoir, Surprised by Joy, describes his life before his conversion as a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Christian, your name was once Legion too. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We have been delivered, and we are being delivered, and one day we will finally be delivered, right? We have been delivered from the penalty of our sin. That's justification. We are being delivered from the power of our sin. That's sanctification. And one day at the end of all things, we will be delivered from the presence of our sin. And that's glorification. Now on this side of the final judgment, life is still messy. There's still addiction and depression. There's still ALS and Alzheimer's and cancer. There's still heartache and hurt and pain and loss. But Mark's account, this picture of Jesus's power in delivering us from our bondage is an inbreaking of the kingdom. It's a picture of what will happen on that final day when Jesus returns. You see, one day when our king returns, when the dawn breaks and the shadows flee, it won't just be 2,000 pigs and 6,000 demons that are drowned in the sea. One day when King Jesus comes back, he's going to cast Satan and all of his minions and all death and all destruction and all darkness and all disease into the abyss. And then we'll live happily ever after. That's our hope. But there's one more thing this morning that I think moves our hearts to begging more and more like the free man, begging to be with Jesus, right? And, and then going out and proclaiming in all the Decapolis everything that Jesus has done for us. You see, in Jesus' economy... Right? On the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee on that day, it was worth 2,000 pigs for Jesus to take one man from bondage and defilement and being cut off 
and crying out to sitting there clothed and in his right mind with freedom and connection and family. And in Jesus' economy, as you're sitting here this morning on the pews at Redeemer, do you know what it was worth for Jesus to take you from bondage and defilement and being cut off and crying out to sitting here clothed and in your right mind with freedom and connection and family? Do you know what it cost him? It was more than 2,000 pigs. What it cost Jesus was everything. It costs us nothing, but it costs him everything. Your deliverance out of your bondage came to Jesus at an infinite price. You see, once he was sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he was clothed in splendor and majesty, and he gave that up, and he came to earth, and he was bound, and he was defiled, and he was cut off, and he cried out, and then he gave up his life. And he did that so that you could be sitting here clothed and in your right mind with freedom, connection, and family. And when that becomes real to your heart, as we see that more and more, then our begging will more and more look like the begging of the freedman, where we're begging to be with Jesus and proclaiming, beginning to proclaim all that he has done for us in the Decapolis. And then everyone will marvel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have given us a great deliverance. We were once in bondage. We were once dead. We once followed the prince of the power of the air. But Father, in your gracious mercy, you have found it fitting that we might be delivered at the infinite cost of the life of your son. Father, I pray that that would become more and more real to our hearts and that we would begin to beg to be with Jesus. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.